With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. It's been a difficult year in America. From plague to protests to politics, there have never been so many lives at stake nor so many questions about the future of our country. Since his election in 2016, questions have been raised about President Trump's too-close-for-comfort ties to Russian leadership and intelligence. Lately, his antagonism toward infectious disease science and CDC guidelines, in addition to his deployment of federal troops into American cities to silence protesters, have led many to compare the current regime to authoritarian governments of long-ago wars. But the truth is, very little about these tactics are new. In other parts of the world, such as in Ukraine, Citizens know them, resist them, and subvert them in a way Americans are just learning how to. In her striking debut, On Our Way Home from the Revolution, Reflections on Ukraine, author Sonia Bilosetakovich speculates on the possibility of future revolutions built on the lessons of revolutions past, both big and small. Her essays expertly weave personal narrative as a member of the Ukrainian-American diaspora into research about Ukrainian myth, politics, history, art, and more in one great cultural examination of Ukraine that is as timely as it is thoughtful. Bilo Setakovich's unique perspective as a Ukrainian-American sheds necessary light onto the darkness of America's current political moment, her voice a guide to finding our way home. Today on the New Books Network, please join us as we sit down with Sonia Bilo Setakovich to learn more about On Our Way Home from the Revolution, available now from Mad Creek Books. Sonia, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So your essay collection is called On Our Way Home from the Revolution, Reflections on Ukraine. So first, um, could you tell us a little bit about your familial and personal connection to Ukraine? So for example, who is Busha and what is your relationship to her? So Busha is sort of Ukrainian for granny. Uh, Busha was my grandmother and she was married to Dido, my grandfather, and both of them came from Western Ukraine and the wave of immigration that followed World War II. Uh, They emigrated to Chicago and raised my father and my uncles in the Ukrainian community there in Chicago. And I had the opportunity as a child to live with Bushandito every summer. Um, And my life there in Chicago in the Ukrainian community was really saturated with Ukrainian culture and language and food. Uh, my grandparents were also uh, deeply involved in Ukrainian scouting organization and uh, involved in Ukrainian sort of political organizing within the diaspora. Uh, one of my first memories of, of protesting, actually, was when my father, who, who is a political scientist and he studies uh, Eastern European politics, he took me to downtown Chicago 
in the winter of 2004 to an Orange Revolution protest. Uh, at the time, back in Kiev, Ukrainians were out on the streets and they were protesting a rigged election that had pitted this pro-Western, uh, sort of pro-democratic candidate named Yushchenko against a pro-Russian candidate named Yanukovych. Um, and so in, in Chicago, in the Ukrainian community, we were um, also like lending our support to that cause. Uh, I was a teenager at the time and I didn't, you know, fully understand sort of what was going on, only that uh, Ukraine was in trouble, that something unfair had occurred there and that it was our job as Ukrainians in North America to kind of raise awareness and compel our American politicians to notice the situation and send aid. So, so my interaction with Ukraine uh, growing up was really through this very active uh, immigrant community. So I'm glad that you mentioned protest because in one of your earliest essays in the book, uh, you find yourself quite literally in the middle of protest and revolution in Ukraine. So what was that experience like for you and what did it teach you about political unrest in Ukraine and your place in it? Yeah, thank you for your question, Zoe. Um, so the, the narrator in that essay that's mostly about the revolution, uh, which is one of the opening essays of the book, uh, she's sort of an exaggeration uh, in some way. Uh, I knew I needed to make that narrator kind of uh, like insufferably arrogant and overly romantic um, mm-hmm. in order to really explore the question that was at the heart of that essay, which is, as a Ukrainian-American, what role could I actually have in Ukrainian corporeal politics, you know, Ukrainian politics on the street. Um, so I kind of took the seeds of that arrogance that I, that I could recognize within myself and I enhanced them so that the fall or the change over the course of that essay would be something, you know, measurable that a reader could also discern. Um, so the narrator, you know, during the course of that, of the revolution, she starts to realize that unlike the Ukrainians around her, she has very little at stake. Uh, in the revolution on Maidan uh, in 2014. So she has an American passport. She can leave the situation. Um, and, and it's not to say that this is like some kind of determination of how all diaspora members should always be acting in such events or, or what their, their role always necessarily is. But the, that essay is just a sort of a really personal examination of, you know, humility and new perspective for, for me and for my narrator. Um, I realized on Maidan that, you know, my Americanness put me in a fundamentally different position than my Ukrainian counterparts, um, a fact which I think to an outside observer seems really obvious. But to someone like me who was raised in this like very deep subculture and this community where, you know, I was told that, you know, you are you you are Ukrainian. You need to identify as Ukrainian. You need to protest for Ukraine. Um, that That was not always obvious to me. Um, but it be, it became obvious in 2014 on Maidan. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, the, the narrator in that essay really comes to learn that she, as an American-born person, has has immense privileges, and and that and that essay is really sort of the catalyst for the return home to the immigrant community to sort of revisit everything she was raised to believe, um, and and so that's sort of like the start of of the whole book project. So another essay sort of earlier on in the book is called Bloodlines. 
and it examines the the sort of common Ukrainian mistrust of and um, sort of enmity for Russian people and political influence. And uh, there's a sentiment that perhaps embodies this best. It's it's a word, uh, Moscow. And so what does this word mean? What histories do these feelings of MD stem from? And how are they perpetuated intergenerationally? Yeah, thank you. Um, so Moscow means Muscovite or Russian more generally. Uh, as, as you suggested, it's, it's derogatory. It's, it has a negative connotation. Um, it's mainly used by non-Russians to refer to people from Russia. Uh, but the, ter- the term was pretty present in my childhood growing up. Uh, my grandmother, Busha, used to recite this famous Ukrainian epic poem, like, by heart. And uh, the, the, the word Moscow appears twice in the opening stanza of the poem. Uh, as a teenager, I had a T-shirt that uh, said on it, uh, which means, thank you, God, that I'm not a Muscovite. Um, and the use of this word by Ukrainians stems from, you know, a long history of oppression uh, under Russia. Uh, in my family specifically, that looks like uh, Busha's brother, my, my great uncle, who was arrested at age 19 and thrown into a Soviet prison for seven months for so-called anti-Bolshevik activity. Um, and it also looks like Busha's father, my, my great-grandfather, who was arrested by the NKVD, uh, the precursor to the KGB, and he died in a Siberian gulag. So the sort of meanness and playfulness of Moscow uh, kind of really just barely scratches the surface of all of the trauma that's below the surface of that word um, and sort of the intergenerational, like you said, enmity and uh, distrust of Russia. So much of the book considers your experience as an American member of the Ukrainian diaspora and your desire to connect to these roots by teaching in Ukraine, by learning the language, revisiting your family's villages. So what challenges have you faced inhabiting this sort of liminal space between nationalities? Hmm. Um, I think I should say, I think I should say first that my life has been in a lot of ways, very blessed by having a position in that liminal space by existing in that liminal space. Um, you know, my, my Ukrainian family's radicalization in light of oppression that, that they faced has really grounded my own political activism, uh, participating even as I did in like a very, very limited way in, in the 2004 Orange Revolution and the 2014 Maidan Revolution has served as a foundation for how I approach American issues of injustice. Um, you know, I, I believe deeply in the power of speculation and speculative politics as a mode of activism. And when I was in Ukraine and I witnessed the overthrow of an authoritarian leader by the people, I, I found that to be, I, I find that to be a real font of inspiration. You know, here, like you have a speculative moment that was transformed into lived reality. Uh, one, one, maybe one example of this that I can share to sort of help illustrate was that during Yanukovych's reign, so this was the pro-Russian president that was overthrown in 2014, uh, he lived in a presidential palace called Mezhahiria, which was on the outskirts of Kiev. And the palace was just this really gross sign of government corruption and opulence. And 
journalists had been trying for years to sort of break into the compound and show everyone like how many, like the gobs of money that he was like spending on sort of his personal effects. Um, but, but when the revolution happened uh, and Yanukovych fled, the people basically stormed the gates at Mezhihirya and reclaimed that space and they turned it into a public park. So once Yanukovych fled, I was able to walk around his, his private zoo, uh, you know, just a few weeks later. And it really like instilled in me this sense that, you know, wow, like if this can happen here, this can happen anywhere that the people, that people power isn't just sort of like a figment of our imagination, you know, um, it's a lived reality in some places. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, I think being able to draw, you know, connections also across the two nationalities, like my Ukrainian community and my American communities has also been really, you know, beneficial. Um, so also, so when protesters, you know, stormed the gates at Mezhihirya, they discovered a trove of documents that Yanukovych was not able to destroy while he, when he was fleeing. Um, and in those documents, you know, they mention uh, the American Paul Manafort, who was this highly paid advisor to Yanukovych. Um, and in 2016, when Trump announced that Manafort would be his campaign chairman, it's like I instantly saw kind of what we were in for. I knew that, that this administration was going to be profoundly corrupt, that it was going to be pro-Russian, anti-human rights, and that the leader would be taking his cues from the post-Soviet autocrats. So um, as, as like a writer and an educator, I guess I found it really beneficial to be able to draw connections across these two cultures and nationalities. Um, and I think, I think ultimately that's kind of what my book is most interested in. And I should say too that I recognize not having to speak so much about the challenges of inhabiting a liminal space is a privilege, you know, that I have as an American born uh, white woman. So I think it's important, you know, for me to acknowledge that as well. So as a writer, as an activist, this next question, I'm really curious to hear your response to. Um, So an essay later in the book is called um, Samizdat. And it describes a situation while teaching abroad where you were asked to actually leave the country after publishing an essay that was critical of Belarus. So what was that experience like for you? And uh, what did it teach you about the nature of political dissent in Belarus? Yeah. um, Well, the experience was terrifying when it was happening, for one. Uh, My narrator's sort of recurring sin throughout the book is just her self-satisfaction and her arrogance um, in spite of how naive she is. And the narrator is constantly having to reassess what she knows and how she knows it. That's sort of uh, really a recurring theme for her. Um, just, I think for a little background is probably helpful here, but Belarus has an authoritarian leader named Alexander Lukashenko. He's been in power since 1994. Um, and when I published that essay about Belarus, I basically totally underestimated just how desperate the Belarusian opposition was at that point. Um, so they ended up taking my essay and without my permission, they translated it and republished it um, on an opposition website that is technically forbidden to access within the border of Belarus. Um, and I figured, you know, I'm just a young nobody from a foreign country. I assumed you know, very wrongly that people in Belarus wouldn't really care what I had to think. I assumed that my, my audience would be Americans. Um, but of course I was 
you know, totally missed the mark on that. Belarusians were much more interested in what I had to say about Belarus than any Americans were interested in what I had to say. Um, so I think, I think underestimating the, the, the gravity of the situation, uh, for one, that's one thing that I learned from that experience. Um, the other surprising thing, uh, about that experience was that my coworkers and friends in Minsk, these people who, you know, in private conversations with me would disparage the dictator, basically, were pretty shocked at my words and my decision to publish that piece. Um, in sort of reflecting on that, I found uh, the Polish writer Czesław Miłosz's concept of Ketman to be really, really helpful. Miłosz talks about Ketman as this idea that a person who lives in an unfree society uh, while they might be personally opposed to the regime, they have to, in professional settings or public settings, they have to feign uh, support for the regime. So it's basically this kind of, you know, complex game of appearances that it just involves hiding your true op- opposition. And in a place like Belarus, where a majority of workers, you know, are still working for the state, I, th- I think the state owns or controls something like 70% of all enterprises still. Um, I, I, I guess I learned that, you know, political dissent doesn't always have the luxury of being loud and flashy. And as an American coming in and publishing this essay, it was like this totally brazen, like very American form of dissent in a place where um, I, I really didn't understand the context or of what I was doing. Um, so all of that said, um, I have been really encouraged by the news this summer uh, in the run up to the presidential election there. Uh, the state barred two opposition candidates from running against Lukashenko. And now Belarus is seeing some of the largest protests that they've had in a decade. Uh, so protesters are being arrested left and right. There's a bunch of videos online you can watch of this. Um, but it seems that people are really fed up and, and energized um, and they're, they're staying in the streets for now. So there's something kind of hopeful, I think, about that. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So um, one quite lyrical essay in the collection is called The Encyclopedia of Earthly Things. And um, it attempts to categorize important objects in Ukrainian tradition and storytelling. So my question for you is, what role does superstition and myth play in Ukrainian culture, and how are these linked to its political history? Yeah, so um, a big part of this this project was, uh, you know, questioning the myths that the narrator had inherited as a a member of the Ukrainian-American community. Um, Probably the most important and notable example in the book uh, is uh, the sort of uh, admiration for these 20th century Ukrainian nationalist fighters, uh, these men who, on the one hand, envisioned a Ukraine that was free from Russian aggression, which is great, but on the other hand, at various points, they either collaborated with or accommodated the Nazis during the German occupation of Ukraine. Um, so I spend a lot of time sort of thinking about them and their legacy in my community. Um, and the book just in general is interested in sort of like troubling and deconstructing these myths. Um, but, but while I was writing it, I found myself still like kind of wanting to participate in mythmaking. I was sort of like slipping, slipping into mythmaking and I, I couldn't really get away from that impulse and 
maybe it's just a really human impulse or maybe it's something that is, you know, just culturally significant and uh, something I've internalized. But I've spoken a little bit about this elsewhere, but part of my hope for that essay in particular was to, uh, I really wanted to defamiliarize those myths through lyricism. And I wanted to sort of reground our community's stories in the flora and the fauna, these like basic elements of earthly life. Uh, I wasn't avoiding politics in the essay, um, but I was sort of thinking, you know, what happens if I try approaching politics through an ostrich or a sunflower field or a cream soup? Um, So I guess I I sought to draw attention to the act of myth-making itself. Like I wanted it to be obvious that that's what I was doing. Um, and in the process, it sort of simultaneously de- demystifies it while also kind of rekindling the artist's power in those conversations. Um, I, I guess I believe that when artists are really, you know, doing their job well, they are helping to hold their community accountable for its shortcomings, um, which is, you know, an inherently political act. So um, I see I see those things, the myth, the myth making the role of the artist in politics is just being sort of inextricable. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So that's one thing that really sets these essays apart, I think, from the traditional home country or family origin stories on the market is that, you know, you as a writer have meticulously uh, researched each detail, each aspect of Ukrainian myth, politics, art, history. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what that research process was like for you? Yeah, sure. Uh, Thank you for the nice compliment. Um, I love to talk about research. I don't know if it's interesting for other people, but, uh, you know, as a, like maybe you can tell in, in the text that research is, uh, is like incredibly important to my work as a writer. Um, and I guess the essays themselves, uh, you know, they really grew out of like my obsessions. So I had a conversation like once, for example, with my father about a relative of ours who uh, had driven a bus uh during Chernobyl, and he had evacuated people from the town of Pripyat after the Chernobyl nuclear accident. Um, So after I spoke with my dad about this, I spent one season reading basically everything I could find about the accident. Um, And this was before, you know, the HBO series Chernobyl was on. So there weren't really a lot of hot takes floating around. So I was pretty much like in the depths of the internet, uh, on these like Russian language forums that had like all this old HTML on them where people were, 
you know, had posted things in like 2004 and 2005 where they were recounting their experiences of being children during Chernobyl. Um, and I think it's worth noting, you know, I'm not a historian or a sociologist. Um, so my research is really associative and it's really image driven. Um, so on one of those forums, for example, I read that someone who was young during the Chernobyl accident said that the buses sent to evacuate the town reminded her of giant beetles. And later in a completely unrelated scene, one of my relatives back in our family village told me that the Colorado beetles were destroying his potato crop that year. So I ended up doing a ton of research about these Colorado, these beetles, and I really got stuck on this beetle image where the bug became kind of the link between evacuation and devastation or destruction. And I realized that these two phenomena were deeply entwined in my family's history. Um, I, I just absolutely love nonfiction. It's always going to be my home genre, I think. Um, and maybe you can relate to this too, Zoe. But uh, it just it invites us to you know, take these sort of seemingly arbitrary facts that might not be connected in any way and to curate them um, in a manner that, you know, creates existential significance. So trying to like kind of find the internal logic that that's hidden uh, within these images when we put them in conversation with each other. Uh, the, the nonfiction writer Sarah Menkadek has this great quote that I use with students often where she says that she started to see her own research process as a uh, enabling the layering and complexity that lifts an informative tract into a metaphysical exploration. Um, I just really love that notion. It, it totally resonates with me. Um, so, so yeah, my, my research process was really, yeah, kind of like discursive and associative. Maybe the other thing that I'll say about research uh, mm -hmm. is that I was really lucky to have um, success when I did some archival research. Um, I, ended up finding information about my great-grandfather who was arrested by the NKVD, um, and he was never seen or heard from again after that arrest. Um, so the documents that I received from the Ukrainian archives uh, revealed something that I totally did not expect to find, which was that uh, the Soviets were had accused him of collaborating with the Nazis during the, the German occupation of my family's village. Um, so, so that piece of information, uh, led to a really intensive and really depressing six month period of research wherein I was, you know, first of all, trying to make sense of the documents, like, you know, how much can we trust this archival document when from the Soviet government, when my family had already been pegged as enemies of the Soviet regime. Um, and also just really reckoning with the reality of widespread, uh, collaboration between Slavic people and the occupying Germans, you know, that happened in Eastern Europe during the war. Um, so the book was already really concerned with, uh, you know, questions of like responsibility and guilt. Uh, but the crux of the narrative was ultimately hinged on something that I never set out to write about, which, which was the Holocaust. Um, so it, in, in some sense, the research really, you know, determined the course of the narrative for me. So many of these essays examine contemporary Russian influence in Ukraine, 
um, particularly the surveillance state of political dissidents, journalists, and other kind of enemies of the state. Um, but despite this, your essays also highlight the Ukrainian traditions of dissent, of subversion, and revolutionary spirit. Why do you think these qualities are so tied to Ukrainian identity? Hmm, yeah, I I guess I think that, you know, this is something you see with most oppressed groups, which is that where there is oppression, there will always be revolution in, in some form. Um when the Maidan revolution was happening, uh, a good friend and Ukrainian colleague of mine was talking to me in our office one day and she was leaning really heavily against this cabinet. And she said to me, this is the third revolution of my lifetime. I'm so tired. And I will just never forget like how her voice sounded when she said that. Um, so, so yeah, the Ukrainian revolutionary impulse is strong. Like those people are just nearly inexhaustible, but, but that doesn't mean that they wouldn't also like to have a rest, you know, don't we all kind of deserve that? Uh, it reminds me of something, you know, my students in Ukraine would always say things to me like, oh, I just want to live in a normal country. Why can't we live in a normal country? And obviously that word normal is very fraught. Uh, but I think the sentiment behind those statements is important. Like I, you know, worry about, and I, and I don't want to sort of romanticize the oppressed groups oppression and their revolutionary spirit, because I don't want them to continue facing that oppression. I don't want them to have to, you know, I don't want that to have to be part of Ukrainian identity. Um, but I guess, you know, for the time being or for as long as it, as it is, uh, you know, I'll just do my best to sort of continue supporting the work of those revolutionaries. So earlier in the interview, you mentioned speculation, the idea of speculation. Um, as a teacher in Ukraine in the early 2010s, you write that you didn't imagine the corruption of Russian influence and Ukrainian resistance uh, would one day become part of American politics, and especially not so soon. So one of the final essays in the book is called Swing State, and it explores the political and social impacts of the 2016 election, both in its run-up and in its aftermath. Can you tell us about what it was like to witness this as a Ukrainian-American um, having uh, seen a similar situation unfold once before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, so as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, once I heard that Paul Manafort was on Trump's campaign and I heard Trump himself sort of praising Vladimir Putin basically at every chance he, he had, I started to get, you know, really worried. I had just watched this, the pro-Russian president in Ukraine, you know, murder a hundred plus pro-democracy protesters, including, um, a colleague of mine, at the university where I was teaching at the time. So, so during the 2016 election, I was, you know, really frustrated and, and nervous. In October of that year, I asked uh, my boyfriend uh, at the time, he's now my husband, uh, if we could make some kind of like small demonstration in downtown Columbus, Ohio, so that I could pass out literature about Trump's like very disturbing admiration of Putin. Um, and my partner, who's such a wonderful human, he, uh, for my birthday, which was also in October, he printed this like giant picket sign of Putin holding a baby Trump. 
And it was, it's done in this like uh, sort of style of an old Soviet propaganda poster, the image that originally featured uh, Joseph Stalin. Um, and my partner and I stood on the corner of Broad and High Street in downtown Columbus, right across from the Ohio State House. And we passed out brochures that had, you know, facts about the brutality of Putin's Russia alongside quotes uh, featuring sort of Trump's professed love of Putin. Um, and this was, you know, this was months before the idea of Russian collusion was really in the headlines. Um, so people, I think most people that saw us kind of just thought we were freaks, like some kind of fringy sort of street corner preacher types, um, you know, being like, hey, y'all, the end is nigh, like, don't vote for this dude or whatever. Um, and of course, like, also there were, you know, millions of people who were critical of Trump at that point and very deeply fearful of what a Trump administration would mean for America. But I guess my particular position as a Ukrainian American just simply offered a different avenue of understanding, you know, just sort of another way of looking at, at, at the danger of, the, of this potential administration. Um, and, and I mean, now that, you know, here we are, summer 2020, federal officers are roaming the streets of Portland and supposedly they soon will be in other cities. They're terrorizing Black Lives Matter protesters, you know, and I cannot help but think of the activists, you know, who were murdered on Maidan by federal officers there. Um, dozens of those people were killed by sniper fire. The snipers fled to Russia. Putin refused to extradite them. He's protected them. Um, you know, I can't help but think of the fact that Trump spoke with Putin by phone on June 1st, you know, in the midst of all of these George Floyd protests across the nation. And then later that same day, he told U.S. governors that they need to, quote, you know, dominate the streets, dominate the protesters and throw them in jail for 10 years uh, in order to quell the uprising. Um, mm -hmm. So anyways, yeah, Trump has basically been taking cues from Putin since day one. And again, it's not like other people haven't been ringing the alarm on this, but certainly watching these events unfold as Ukrainian American has been deeply, deeply unsettling and frustrating. Yeah. Very eerie, those parallels mm -hmm. and connections. Yeah. So um, I want to pivot to a question about form. Uh, in terms of form, I'm wondering, could you tell us about your decision to write On Our Way Home from the Revolution as a collection of essays rather than a traditional memoir? What makes the essay such a great form for investigating the kinds of questions that your book poses? So, yeah, I think the essay form, you know, worked for this material in part because of the very kind of like the searching, questioning, kind of like archive digging nature of this story. Um, you know, the story is a lot about pulling and together and piecing together these found fragments of Samizda and archival documents. And the forum kind of mimics that in a way. Uh, one of my good friends, uh, the writer Lena Ferreira, has this quote that I love where she says, nonfiction is not merely the absence of fiction, but the sincere essaying towards something universally human and singularly personal. Um, and I really love that quote. I use it all the time with my students too. But I love this idea of essaying as a verb, like as its own particular activity, the searching, the questioning, the trial, that that has value in itself. Um, 
in the in that same craft piece, Lena goes on to talk about sort of probing the space between facts, um, sort of locating meaning in the liminal space between facts. Um, and I mean, this book, you know, my book deals with revolution and violence, and we're and we're talking about like such immense social phenomena. The facts kind of only get us so far. You know, how does one account for guilt? Um, in terms of violence? How does one account for responsibility? And those are really the questions that I was essaying toward uh, in the composition process. So the essay form really felt like the most appropriate one to adopt. I mean, I think it's possible maybe the manuscript would have gotten more attention if it wasn't a more traditional form, but I cannot imagine uh, it existing really in any other form but the essay. Well, wonderful. So I just have one more question for you. And that is, what are you hoping that readers will come away from on our way home from the revolution, understanding better about Ukraine? Um, I mostly just hope that American readers might start to understand that, you know, many of the nefarious interests that are at play in Ukraine are also at play in the United States, thanks in large part to global capitalism and corruption. Um, I guess I hope readers will internalize the idea that resisting a tyrannical government is way easier said than done. And that in fact, you know, most people don't resist, that that's actually sort of more statistically uh, uh, obvious that that people don't resist. Um, I think this is maybe something Americans know in like a very superficial way, but I hope that the book might help them to sort of begin the process of deepening that understanding. Um, you know, I think, you know, it's easy for us, you know, looking back at history now to say that I would have been one of those people who broke the law and hid Jews in my home during the Holocaust. But I, I truly think that that sense of complacency and kind of self-satisfaction is, is dangerous because it doesn't easily lend itself to, to staying vigilant. And I think vigilance is, is what we need right now. Um, so ultimately, uh, I hope that readers will just mostly question their own complicity and responsibility for whatever injustices are, are already you know, happening around them. Um, and if, if this story about Ukraine helps them to sort of get to a point where they're more prepared to do that, then I guess the book will have, you know, done what I, what I wanted it to. Well, Sonia, it sounds like um, a, a very timely book. And thank you for your thoughtful answers to these questions and um, for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with Sonia Bilosetikovic, author of On Our Way Home from the Revolution, on New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.